Hello and welcome to the Smart Power Podcast. In this episode, the last episode of the Palestine series, we will be talking to Saladin. In this episode, we will be talking about matters of importance in Palestine, the joys and sorrows of the people living in Palestine, the idiosyncrasies and the beauties of the Palestinian state, which a large majority of the world now recognizes as a state, even though practically Palestine, due to Israeli aggression, is not a sovereign state. August Saladin makes great hummus, loves history and geography. He loves maps so much that he actually bothers to add streets, roads and verify maps that you and I use to make our travels easier and convenient. We'll talk more about that later, but it's great having you on our podcast. Hi everyone, it's nice to be here with you today. And thanks for being a part of our podcast. So let's begin. Hi, Saladin. Thank you for being here with us. Um, Just to start off with our first question, um, there's been much talk about refugee camps. Uh, Can you just briefly tell us what are refugee camps in the West Bank and how did they come about? So basically, the story of Palestinian refugee camps started like uh, after one year of the Nakba, the catastrophe of Palestinians of 1948. And the first camp for refugees was uh, El Ain camp next to Nablus, 1949. But most of other refugee camps were established in the 1951 and 1950. And uh, the camps are owned by the UNRWA and a. It is common in West Bank to hear that this land is basically rented for 99 years. So this land was basically rented because a people and so the Yonorwa thought that they only would be as refugees maybe for like months or weeks after then. But uh, unfortunately it turned to be like until this moment the refugee camps and Palestinian causes still exist and refugees of Palestinians still make the majority of Palestinians. All right, Saladin. So uh, can you tell us what life in a West Bank refugee camp looks like? And what does it mean to be a Palestinian refugee? Can you tell us what the effects of the Israeli Defense Forces has had in these camps? Yeah, so a refugee camps started as camps of tents, but then they turned to be a concrete kind of a of, of of camps and you know camps like in West Bank uh, and I think uh, all of the Palestinian refugee camps all around the Levant countries in Palestine uh, they look like really high dense concrete cities that you can recognize that you are passing next to a refugee camp whenever you like in the area of, of a refugee camp and talking about like the economic uh, kind of factor in the camps is is the lowest in West Bank and a, I think it's the case as well in all the refugee camps all around the living countries. A, what makes the life in camps more disastrous is basically the continuous invasions of the Israeli military and the military attacks to the camp, especially in the like in the late hours of the night or the early morning which prevents people from having a regular kind of life. Even they don't have the chance to sleep for most of the days. And it's like really common in the camp to wake up like 
having soldiers just like getting you out of the home by by just throwing things in the house or just grabbing your legs and taking you out the house so yeah attacks of the israeli army can make like life so horrible in the camps and you know as well the camps like life in the camp is really horrible again compared to other places in west bank itself like for example like cities like ramallah there's like a huge difference of economy the standards of life and like many other things, despite the fact that Ramallah is also suffering as any other town in or city in West Bank. So the kind of life that you're describing in the West Bank refugee camps, uh, it, it's not something that people actually aspire to or desire, right? And the edu- and education anywhere around the world is always seen as a ticket to a better life. So uh, my question to you is, what is the role of education in the lives of Palestinian refugees? So the economic status for for people in the refugee camp uh, is basically low because they've got nothing to do. Basically, people in West Bank, either in cities or villages, they have got either like their farms to work on or their like business in cities. And in camps, they have got nothing. So basically, the only way for them to get out of this trouble is to try and get like a well education so they can afford jobs and afford getting, let me say, flats or apartments, or at least a, a cheap land to build a house somewhere in West Bank uh, and getting themselves out of the refugee camp. And you know, even in terms of size, you know that the size of camp is, is fixed since it was bought for the land. So basically people got the, like, when they want to stay in the camp for not affording a land out of the camp or a flat, the only way is to build above the flats of their family. And, you know, now this thing, like, it reached a point that almost no one can do that. So now focusing on education, it's been like since the 1948, it's been like a the golden credit, let me say, for people to to get out of the camp for like a better life or a bit of like opportunity. So what we also know is that the United Nations Relief and Works Agency for Palestine refugees in the Near East and Near East considering Britain as a frame of reference, um, also known as UNRWA or UNRWA, operates schools and relief work for refugees in Palestine. Uh, what is the impact that UNRWA has had on Palestinian refugees on a day-to-day life? Uh, the role of UNRWA, like since the Nakba, has been like really uh, essential for the lives of Palestinian refugees. I-, I would say that nowadays, like maybe most of refugees got a better financial state by ha- by by being forced to go on their lives. But still, in camps, there are lots of people that still cannot afford their food, and basically, the UNRWA is now not giving food for any kind of family at all, like anymore. And when it comes to services, like the UNRWA is decreasing its services like gradually every year, ending now in only offering some basic medications and like clinics around the camps and a school education from first to ninth grade, which is like um, even like less than the last level of the elementary education in Palestine. 
what makes the services of UNORWA even more influential is that the the sanitation and the hygiene of the camps. So basically, like once there is a strike for UNORWA employees, refugee camps can literally turn into like a big garbage of trash. You know, so the services of UNORWA are still very key and important for Palestinian refugees. And what makes like UNORWA even more important is like the Palestinian cause itself. Like even if you are like, let me say now you are not a refugee that is starving till death, you are still a refugee. So it's a cause. And it was like the call of people in Palestine once like UNORWA decided to cut the salaries of the teachers and decrease its services that, okay, so the UNORWA exists because we are refugees. Get us back to our home and we don't want any kind of service from any agency like UNORWA or etc. Saladin, in terms of uh, people voicing and objecting to the issues um, within the West Bank and uh, refugee camps and whatnot, what can you tell us what are the consequences of Palestinian activism in the West Bank? So the Palestinian like demand of, of their freedom or like any kind of a speech about their rights, uh, this can bring them to jail. The Israeli kind of jails, like I know some people that were taken to jail because of a Facebook or a Twitter kind of status. So anything against the policies of Israel can, at some point, take you to jail. And you know that being like brought to jail is not like staying for a week or two. Sometimes you can be sentenced for like three years for a Facebook status against Israel, especially like if, if you have got your own audience. And also it depends and like, for example, like the where are you from? So they really have a focus on, for example, Palestinians in Jerusalem, for example. So they do care a lot about what you do. And some of like kind of organizations like the BDS, they take that really seriously. Like, even though you can be sent directly to investigation once you arrive to the borders of the country again. It's interesting that you yeah, that you should mention the BDS. So what is the BDS? What's the full form of the BDS and what do they do in Palestine? So the BDS is basically an organization that is based uh, outside the, the borders of Palestine. And it aims basically to... BDS stands for a boycott, divest and sanctions a so it basically trying to a reveal the real fact of israel and how maybe like investing in israeli kind of companies can basically contribute in killing other people and sponsoring the like the military that goes and kill other innocents in gaza on palestine and can re and you know that kind of organizations can really contribute to the apartheid in the occupied territories. Uh, so this foundation, or sorry, or this organization is basically having a, a good impact or a high impact that started to put the Israeli economy under pressure. So uh, since like the last few years, they started to take anything to be highly serious about the BDS. Like, regardless of promoting for them or being like directly or indirectly involved, especially if you are like one of those Palestinians that are staying abroad. 
So once being like reported of doing something for the BDS, and once you are getting back home, they can in investigate you like really well and really bad about your activities and why you are involved in the BDS and so on. And you know, like they can send anyone in prison, to, sorry, to prison without any kind of fair or logical excuses. Referring to human rights, uh, what are the implications for Palestinians in refugee camps regarding human rights? How restrictive is the freedom of movement? Uh, in our last episode, Diego spoke about how traveling inside West Bank can take a lot of time and would involve going through uh, many checkpoints. Do you have anything to add to this? Uh, for checkpoints, uh, West Bank is full of checkpoints, and uh, many of them are permanent checkpoints. So it's like passing through a border, and uh, people like would feel glad and like a uh, full of a gratitude for God if if they if there is no checking on these permanent checks. And those occur like everywhere in West Bank when it comes to going out and in the north, the south, and the middle of West Bank, along with the entrances of cities, the Palestinian cities. And like the most, I think, worth mentioning case is the Kalkilia's case. So the city of Kalkilia is basically surrounded by the Israeli settlements and the Israeli borders from all sides, except for one way. Whenever it's closed, the whole city is closed from going in or out. And but you can expect to be blocked or expect an Israeli checkpoint everywhere. So they just can have the jeep next to the road and asking people to step down or to start just checking people. And uh, something also to mention about chicken points uh, is that even in the integrated streets between Palestinians and Israelis, it's only the Palestinians that are being checked. So basically, if you are driving a car with an Israeli plate, you you just don't have to be on the queue. You just keep going and pass without any problem. And for some streets and some ways, Palestinians are not even allowed to go on the same street as the Israelis. Uh, mentioning uh, the Jerusalem, a kind of a street. So basically going from Ramallah city to Bethlehem city, and both of them are in West Bank, a, we are not allowed to go through Jerusalem. So there is like a way for Palestinians that goes far away to the east of Jerusalem. And it takes like around like two hours to one hour and 30 minutes to get to throw like a way which is supposed to be only 20 minutes. And you know that road is really risky because it goes by the cliffs of the Jordan Valley above the close to the Dead Sea. So, like many Palestinians lost their lives going on this street, especially that a, it was really narrow until like a modern time when Palestinians could like get the permission in order to improve the street. And you know, the street is still without any kind of lights because it's like an area C and Israelis are not allowing lights in this street. But hopefully, <laughs> at least we will be having some soon. Also, there are like kind of tunnels for Israelis not to get in the West Bank, and uh, Palestinians are not allowed to use these tunnels. Mentioning about that is like a, the tunnel of like going from next to Bethlehem, which is to the south of Jerusalem, and going directly under Bethlehem to Jerusalem in a tunnel. And the Palestinians, for example, in Bethlehem, once being permitted to get in 
Jerusalem, they are not allowed to use it. Mentioning, in fact, that the part of Jerusalem I'm talking about is basically East Jerusalem, which is supposed to be a part of the Palestinian state. Speaking of roads and tunnels, you've told us that you've uh, you know, added roads, streets and places to online maps. My question is, wh- why do you do what you do? And what's your motivation for editing and verifying maps? Why do you, wh- what draws you to maps so much? So using GPS and maps in, in West Bank is not like anywhere else in the world. So using GPS is supposed to be easy and, you know, useful with full of like landmarks in it. But in West Bank, there are like restrictions for most of the platforms, like mentioning, let me say, a Apple Maps. In Apple Maps, like users cannot edit anything and using no one, no one can use Apple Maps in West Bank because basically 99% of the streets are not included based on restrictions from the Israeli government. So basically, I do my best in order to add streets and landmarks for platforms that users can edit on them, like mentioning OpenStreetMaps platform, which is like the source of many applications, GPS applications. And you know, I like I myself thought that it was a duty for me because, like checking the map of of my city, I like. I saw that once an Islamic shrine is turned to be an uh, like a temple of a Judaism, and it was like in the middle of Area A, in which like no Joe people are living in there. And I try my best in order to turn the facts into their like right kind of thing, and avoiding their influence on changing facts even in maps. So it's not just taking the land and making like people refugees and their lives misery, but they are taking like everything. They are focusing on the maps, even the cuisine. Now, you know, like hummus is promoted to be an Israeli food, which in fact, like a purely Levant kind of cuisine. Bringing this episode and the Palestine series to a close, I have one final question for you. We have heard in this episode and in the past three episodes about how Palestine has changed and evolved over time. The borders, cities, the possibility of a two-state solution has changed as well. Can you just summarize for us the evolution of Palestine? And to add to that question, uh, what is the possibility of a situation where Israel and Palestine live side by side without much violence and in peace? So the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, uh, if I can call it so, uh, really started to be a, a case or a cause in 1917 when England gave the Zionist organization in Europe a promise that in a case they got over the south of Syria, which which was back then representing the whole of the Levant countries, Palestine, Lebanon, Jordan, and Syria, modern Syria. And, uh, you know, England won the World War One maybe after one month of, the, of that promise, and they took over Palestine. And, uh, you know, in 1919, they divided Palestine completely as a separate state from greater Syria. Although Palestinians in King Ukraine Commission, they voted of being Syrian citizens. So they divided Syria into four countries. And after then, uh, it turned to be like there is a plan on giving like one of these four pieces to, to the Zionist organization or foundation. And uh, since then, uh, you know, England added Hebrew, modern Hebrew, to the currency of Palestine. Although back at that time, they were like nothing of the population. 
and they started to bring a Jew people from Europe a, as uh, asylum seekers in Palestine, like in mass numbers, seeking for the Palestinian, between two brackets, citizenship under the British mandate. But in fact, they were like helping them in, in getting their a, weapons, being military trained. Although at the end of the British mandate, they started to go into a play that England stopped being able to control these Zionist organizations and as if England is against the mass Jewish immigration after the 1936 and earlier kind of revolutions waged by Palestinians against the British mandate and the mass Jewish immigration. But in 1947, when the Israel, when like there became a, a deal of having two states in 1947, a Palestinians got out of their mind because it was the first, uh, like really obvious impression that they they are losing their country basically for people that they accepted as refugees at the first. And, you know, uh, Palestinians back then had nothing to do because during the British mandate, there were like double standards in dealing with Palestinians. At the, uh, on the hand, a, the Jewish organization uh, were well-trained and with many weapons. On the other side, any Palestinian was accused of, of owning one bullet, his, like, he would have faced execution directly. So what happened is that Palestine, like, the surrounding, let me say, new established armies. And the funny fact that they were led by the Jordanian army, which was back then still led by British officers. And they got in Palestine in order to protect it from the Israelis that started already bombing villages and so on. The war and that, that kind of conflict ended in 1948. For the Zionists of winning the is like the Jew people winning a 77.4 of the Palestinian land in which they declared a new state called the State of Israel, and since then most of Palestinians and major cities were destroyed and depopulated. Uh, and you know, in 1967, they took over the two other parts, West Bank, which was controlled by England, by sorry, by Jordan until 1967, and Gaza Strip from Egypt, and the Golan Heights and Sinai, in the same year. And uh, you know, since then they have been like uh, colonizing and building settlements in in West Bank, uh, starting from. Uh, illegal kind of claims like military area or like a land for the government is not for people and once like a core of a settlement starts it would be expanding on villagers land and you know now the like the settlement of like colonization of west bank is being really heavy to a point that in my opinion it ends the the two-state solution because basically they are everywhere and they are just putting pressure on Palestinians and on the, like the international community that the two-state solution is basically impossible and they're working on this. At the same time, they don't want anyone to be an Israeli citizen. And that's what, like Netanyahu mentioned the other day, that Israel is only a country for Jewish people. It's not a country for all of its citizens. So now in West Bank, the situation is that they having an occupation for free. 
the Palestinian Authority is not a state, and they are in control of the Palestinian Authority. The Palestinian Authority is basically responsible only for a kind of administration. So the Israeli part is not in charge of paying, let me say, salaries for anyone or having services for Palestinians anywhere in West Bank. At the same time, they are still in charge of all of the security issues. And, uh, you know, this is an occupation for free. So they are like really happy with the situation now going in West Bank. They are controlling everything and they have like building more and more settlements in West Bank. They are not giving a country for Palestinians. And at the same time, Palestinians in West Bank are not Israeli citizens. So this kind of situation is basically utopia, let me say, for them. Thanks for being on our podcast, Saladin. It has been great learning so much about Palestine from you and your fellow Palestinians. Do you have any last thoughts? Thank you all for listening and for like having an interest in the Palestinian cause and situation. And I would recommend like each one of you to investigate more when they hear anything about the cause or the Palestinian-Israeli conflict because the Israelis are in charge of most of the influential news agencies around the world. And it's always their story and the turning of fact, which is more published than the what the situation really is. And I would like invite any one of you to come to the West Bank and see this how the situation really is on regular and practical basis. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Thanks, Saladin. This is the end of the Palestine series. Thanks for listening to the Smart Power Podcast with Akash Antal. We will be back next week with another exciting episode and with another exciting guest as well. The Smart Power Podcast is now available on 11 platforms. Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher and many, many more. Please consider rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from. Also, please consider following or subscribing to our podcast. If you listen to our podcast on Anchor, you can leave us a voice message through the app and we might feature you in our next episode. Thanks for listening. This is Akash. And Tal. Signing off. Signing off.